All right, we are in our Spirit of Life series. I'm going to get you out of here by 1230 today, unless the Holy Spirit moves. Uh, and then if you're resistant to the Spirit, you can still leave at 1230. All right, I told you, we, I told you last week we had uh, 10 chapters of Acts to go, but we only have four Sundays left. So I'm not going to go chapter by chapter. Um, what chapter was I in last week? I don't remember, like 16. I was in chapter 16 last week. Uh, we're jumping to chapter 20 today. We're going to be talking about four of the great pneumatological themes of the book of Acts. Uh, pneumatological has to do with the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at the four primary functions of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts so that we can understand how the Holy Spirit functions not only in the church of the first century, but in the church of the last century, the function of the Holy Spirit in our church. Last Sunday, I talked to you about the Holy Spirit as uh, bringing divine guidance, the Holy Spirit's function of providing us with divine guidance. And I talked about divine guidance as the key to everything that the Holy Spirit does in our midst. Today, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit as the author of hope. That is, wherever there's been a loss of hope, the Holy Spirit comes to bring about living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we're going to look at a situation here in Acts chapter 20 uh, in which this transpired. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 through 12. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 through 12. And for some reason, I'm reading from the New International Version today, but I'm just going to go with that. I'm just going to go with that. Um, I don't know why, but we'll see. Maybe that was divine. This is what it says. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story, and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you give us wisdom and understanding as we turn our hearts and minds toward your holy word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want us to understand the context of what is happening in this passage of Scripture. What is happening here is Paul is on his last missionary journey. Ever since Acts 13, Paul has been on three missionary journeys in which he has taken a certain route, planted a bunch of churches in the first journey, and then in the second journey he goes back he visits the churches he already planted and then moves into a new region and plants some new churches. Now he's going back through all of the churches a third time to encourage them and to strengthen them. But in every church, he's giving them this message. This is the last time you're ever going to see me. This is the end of my ministry in this church. I'm headed towards Jerusalem, bound in the spirit, not knowing what will befall me there, except that in every city the Spirit bears witness that chains and tribulations await me. 
And if you want to understand the character of these meetings and all these churches that Paul is visiting, you've actually got to read down a little bit further here in Acts chapter 20 because the very next city that he visited, this passage that we just read in verses 7 through 12 occurred in the, the city called Troas. But the next city he visits is Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he calls the Ephesian elders together after ministering to the church for an exceedingly long period of time. And then he gathers the elders by the seashore and he says to them, I know that none of you among whom I've gone preaching the gospel will ever see my face again. And so he says to them, shepherd the flock of God, which is under your care, serving as overseers. For I know that after I leave, savage wolves are going to come and destroy the flock, not sparing the flock. And he says, but you, he says, keep your heads in all situations. And he encourages the elders. And he says goodbye. And the elders fall on his neck and they weep and they weep and they weep and they weep. Why? Because he told them, I know that you will never see my face again. This is it. He knows that he's getting ready to embark on a journey that's going to cost him his life. And so in every city that he visits, in every church that he visits, he knows this is my last opportunity to minister to you. And back then they didn't have podcasts and YouTube channels and Facebook channels. So there was no way to preserve except taking as many notes as you could. And back then everybody didn't have a journal. Paper and something to write with was extremely expensive and extremely rare. The only thing you had were your two ears and your mind and your heart. This is your last opportunity to hear from this great apostle who came into your city and planted your church. And you've only, this is only the third time you've seen him and already he's gone. And he's telling you, this is it. I'm headed towards death. And he says to them, I now commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, that helps us understand this meeting in Troas and why Paul talked for so long. First, it says he talked till midnight. He probably started the meeting somewhere around 7 p.m. And he preached for five hours. And there was a group of people who were mature, who understood the significance of this moment. He's going to talk for a long time. Why? Because this is his last opportunity to share the gospel with us. And this is our last opportunity to hear the gospel from him. If we've taken him for granted for all this time, we can't take it for granted tonight. We're going to be at the meeting tonight. There's no way that I'm going to be too busy to be at the meeting tonight. This is the last meeting that we're going to hear from this great apostle who met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus who received revelations for 14 years in the wilderness of Arabia and who has turned the world upside down with the gospel and planted churches all over Asia Minor, who has written 16 letters that will become the foundation of the New Testament. This was a hugely important church service. This was one of the most important church services in the history of church services. This was, if, if I, it's in the top 10. If I could say there were 10 services I'd want to be at, I'd want to be in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. I'd want to be at Azusa Street in 1906, and I would want to be at that church service in Troas or in Ephesus where Paul is saying farewell to a church because I want to hear what does Paul say to a church when he knows this is it. This is my last sermon to you. This is my last moment to minister to you. It's hugely important until you understand the emotion of the context of that meeting. You don't understand the significance of what transpired. But there was this 
young man, the scripture says, named Eutychus. By young man, it means not fully matured yet. And one of the marks of maturity is the ability to identify things of value. You see, the younger we are, the less capable we are of identifying things of value. My daughter leaves lights on all the time. Every room she goes into, she goes into thinking, I think I need to turn on every single light in this entire room. And then when she leaves, do I need to turn it off? No, I'm going to go into a different room and turn on every single light in this room. She don't understand the value of electricity. I'm constantly coming behind her, turning off lights. Will you turn off the light? She leaves the bathroom lights on and there's three lights in the bathroom. Try to turn all of them on. And there's two lights in the hallway. She's got to turn both of them on and in her bedroom. And I'm constantly following her. You don't understand the value of electricity because you don't have to pay for it yet. And so I told her the other day, I said, I'm going to start docking your allowance for leaving the lights on. Here comes the waterworks. She's so sensitive. I'm like, toughen up a little bit. Come on. Stop being so sensitive. I haven't even taken anything from you. You're already crying. I said, I'm going to if you don't start turning the lights off. That was it. She went into meltdown. But the older you get, the more you begin to... Because I, I, I can't get too mad at her because I remember my daddy following me around the house, turning off lights when I was her age. Always barking. Why is every light on in this entire house? He'd come home so mad at night because sometimes I'd be the only one home and every light in the entire house was on. <laughs> Upstairs, downstairs, the garage light was on. Why is every light in this entire house on? What is wrong with you? And I'm like... Dang, calm down. See, when you're, when you're young and your dad gets mad, you're like, man, you're tripping. What are you so mad about? When you become a dad, it's like, why don't you understand the value? My daughter is too young to understand the value of certain things. Like, she's too young to understand the value of things like food. To her, all food is free. So if she takes a bite of something and doesn't like it, she has no problem throwing it in the garbage. Like, <laughs> do you know how much that cost? You don't understand the value. You see, Eutychus was a young man. He had enough sense to be at the meeting, but he didn't have enough sense to stay awake for the meeting. He understood a little bit of the value. It's valuable. I need to be there because there's some value in being, you know, this is Paul's last meeting here. And, you know, I heard awesome things about Paul and he's awesome. And I remember last time he came to town and, and there was like some miracles that transpired. So I got to be there. But he didn't understand the value of staying awake to hear every word that this man spoke. And so he's sitting up in the window and he starts sinking into a deep sleep. First, it says he was sitting in the window. Secondly, he was sinking into a deep sleep. Now, the problem was not just that he was falling asleep. The problem was that he was falling asleep while sitting in the window of a third-story building. Right. See, had he been sitting down in the pew, he could have fallen asleep, and it would have just been kind of funny, you know? This guy next to him just, wake up, boy, wake up, you know? But when you're sitting up in a third-story window, and they didn't have dual-pane windows. They didn't have glass windows back then. A window was called, an, it was an opening in the wall. <laughs> he was sitting up in a third-story window. He's all propped up there and all nice and comfortable. 
So you can fall asleep. Just don't fall asleep while you're sitting in your window. See, everybody has a window. Everybody in this room has a window. Your window is that place of vulnerability in your life where you don't always realize that you're sitting in a precarious place. And, you know, when you're when you're a kid and you, you go, you know, <laughs> I still watch videos of Alethea when she was a baby. And it's like she she would climb, stand up on the table and she would stand right on the edge of the table, you know, and she's like barely balanced up there. I'm like, ah, but she don't sense the danger. She's just like, you know what I mean? Like she just got it in her mind. And that's why kids fall off beds and, and fall off stuff and they're falling all the time. Why? Because they don't know. Don't you know the way you're standing, you're standing in a precarious place. And if you don't move away from the edge, you're going to fall off that thing. Any of you ever have your baby fall off the bed? Isn't that terrifying? Isn't that one of the most terrifying things? Oh my goodness. When your baby falls off the bed and you see it happen, it's like slow motion. No! It's like you dive to catch the baby. The baby is too young to realize how dangerous the position I'm in is. But then kids start getting older and they start taking unnecessary risks. Like my daughter likes to go up the stairs and then climb out on the other side of the banister and then she starts, you know, go, get, get, oh, yeah. you don't realize if you slip and fall or if that banister breaks, you dead. You know what I mean? There's no coming back from that one or you're maimed for life. You're in a precarious place. And it's one, and you know, and you see kids that just, I remember my brother, when we were little kids, my brother was outside roller skating with his hands in his pocket <laughs> until he hit a rock and went face down and couldn't get his hands out in time to stop himself. Bam! Head down, and there was another little pebble there that, bam! And he got up, and blood was like, So, yeah, you ain't going to, I mean, we were freaked out at the time, but you look, at, you look back on it, you're like, he never roller skated with his hands in his pockets again. From that day forward, you're roller skating like this. <laughs> you think you're safe, but you're in such a precarious place. Your window is that place of vulnerability in your life. You can fall asleep in any place, but don't fall asleep in that window. Because if you fall asleep in that window, you're not just going to fall asleep. You're going to fall. One of my old mentors, I was talking to him about alcohol because I noticed that he completely abstains from alcohol. And I said to him, do you believe in complete abstinence from alcohol? He said, nope. I don't believe that that's a biblical principle. He says, for most believers, having a glass of wine is just that, having a glass of wine. Obviously, I don't believe in drunkenness. Obviously, I don't believe that you should allow alcohol to, once alcohol changes your personality, transforms your sense of consciousness, even if you say, I'm not drunk, yeah, but you're tipsy. You've obviously, you're under the control of alcohol. I don't believe in that. That's wrong. But having one glass of wine or having a beer here, like that's, there's no biblical precedent for complete abstinence from alcohol. I don't believe that. I said, but I noticed you don't drink any alcohol at all. He goes, nope, not even nighttime cold syrup. I said, wow, what discipline? He goes, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I used to be an alcoholic. You see, if I take a sip of alcohol, if you take a sip of alcohol, you'll be fine. That's just a sip of alcohol. If I take a sip of alcohol, I might fall asleep. 
in my window. I mean, he didn't say that, but I'm translating what he said into my message. For me to have a sip of alcohol is like a former crack addict just having a little snort. Just a little crack. That's all. Just a little, just a little crack. Just a little bit. It's not gonna, I'm going to fall out of my window. You, and he said, people look at me and say, you're so strong. I said, no, I'm so weak. I'm weaker than the average believer in this area. And that's why I've got to be more vigilant to stay awake in my window. I might be able to safely fall asleep in some other place, but I can't fall asleep here because this is my window. And if I fall asleep here in this place, I might fall out of my window. Do you know what your window is? And do you have the vigilance to stay awake in your window? You see, some of you in this place right now, you've already begun to fall asleep in your window. You've already begun to just slow. And it says that he was sinking into a deep sleep. And then it said when he was sound asleep, he fell. Notice he didn't fall till he was sound. He sunk a little bit and said, hey, I'm still safe. And then he sunk a little bit more and said, hey, I'm still safe. And then he sunk a little bit more and said, hey, I can do this. I'm cool. And then he sunk a little bit more and said, you know what? I'm, st- I'm so delivered. I can sink this far. And the next thing, he was sound asleep and he's dead. Slow, sinking, sinking, sinking sinking and the next thing you know you're asleep in your window and the next thing you know you've fallen out of your window from the third story and you dead (laughs) and here's what's crazy he fell out of his window at church (laughs) being in the house of God did not protect him from falling out of his window Going to church every Sunday did not protect him from falling out of his window. Isn't that crazy? He probably got up and read the Bible every day, and that didn't protect him from falling out of his window. He was probably a part of a community group and went to community group every day, every week, and that did not protect him from falling out of his window. In other words, oftentimes we can do all of these things and think that we're safe. And think that it's okay to just take a little snooze in this area because I'm doing all these other things, so I must be safe. It don't matter what you do. You've got to make a decision to stay awake while you're in your window. Yeah. Come on. When you're in your window, you better drink some coffee, take some no-dos, drink some Red Bulls. If you need to, get some toothpicks to hold your eyes open. You better have somebody sitting up there to slap you if they see you starting to nod off or just get out of your window and go sit somewhere else. You need to recognize that when you're too tired, you don't need to be fighting certain fights. He was falling asleep for two reasons. One, He didn't understand the value of the word that was being declared to him that night. The value of the significance of this moment. Can I ask you a question? We don't talk about this a lot. But do you believe in hell? You know what I'm finding? It's shocking me. There's certain things that I just think are just like so basic that I find that a lot of Christians have just excised, just removed, just cut out. And one of them is hell. 
Can I tell you something? Hell is real. I mean, it's real. It's real. You don't want to go there. Mm-mm. And pretending it doesn't exist is not going to make it disappear. I had somebody say to me, don't you owe it to the people who follow you to remove this category from your metaphysic? I said, even if I removed it from my metaphysic, I can't make it not exist anymore. And I definitely can't remove it from the word of God. Okay, so we've established that. Hell is real. I don't use that as a fear tactic to try to scare you into the kingdom because that doesn't work either. But at least we've got to be on the same page about the reality of the fact that it's there and you don't want to go there. But do you ever stop to think that if you do go to hell, do you understand that every person who spoke the word of God into your life, that all of those words are going to replay in your consciousness in eternity? And that you're going to look back and realize that you had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, but you did not recognize the value of that word that was being shared with you in that moment. And what you would give for an opportunity to go back and receive that word. See, one of the biggest things that we've lost in our culture is the fear of the Lord. To the extent that when we do get saved or receive Christ or say the prayer, it's like we're giving Jesus an opportunity. All right, you want to, he wants to save me, so I guess I'll let him save me. All right, Lord, I'll give this a try. We don't get it. If you actually understood the fear of the Lord, you would be begging him to save you. <laughs> like, it would be so serious, like, no, I was going to hell. I, I, honestly, if you, don't, if you never had the realization that you were going to hell before Jesus came into your life, I doubt that you're actually really saved. Because saved from what? If not hell, from what? But when you actually stop to think, I was on my way to hell. And Jesus paid the price for my sin? And I don't deserve that? Now you're beginning to understand the gospel, what the gospel is all about. Eutychus was falling asleep for two reasons. Number one, he didn't understand the significance of the moment and the value of the word that was being declared to him. Number two, he forgot that he was in his window. And he sunk deeper and deeper and deeper until he was sound asleep. And when you're sound asleep, you're physically present, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, you're absent. Sounds like a lot of folks in the church. You're in the room, but you're not here. Jesus said to the Pharisees, why is it that you can't understand my language? It's because you don't hear my word. What he's literally saying to the Pharisees, if, if you would open your heart and mind to hear my word, then you would understand my language. 
You don't understand the categories that I speak in because you don't hear my word. The disciples, they heard his word even if they didn't understand his language. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. The disciples are like, we don't know what you're talking about, but we know you have the words of eternal life. Understanding is not necessary. Trust and faith is necessary. Understanding can come later, but I trust the word that's being spoken to me. These are the words of eternal life. When you begin to understand the value of the word, it can keep you awake in your window. He didn't even have to, he didn't have, listen, he didn't even have to realize how dangerous the place in his window was. He simply had to realize that I have an opportunity in this window to receive the word of God. And if he would have just kept him, if he would have said, I got to stay awake to hear this word. What keeps you awake is not trying to, trying not to fall out of your window. Because this is how a lot of believers live. So aware of the window. You still can't hear the word because Paul's down there preaching and you're just sitting up in the window going, don't fall, don't fall. Don't fall out of this window. I'm not not asleep. I'm awake. And you're so focused on not falling out of your window that you're completely incognizant of the fact that the word is coming. If you remain conscious of the word, you can actually forget about the window. But Eutychus forgot about both the word and the window And he fell. Plummeted to his death from the third story. Some of y'all started laughing when I read that verse. He fell out of the third story window. (laughs) In a sense, it is a little bit fun. No, it's not funny. This dude died. I rebuke you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) If you laugh, no, I'm just playing. I, I want you to see the scene. Just picture the scene. Paul's been talking for about five hours. It said, as Paul talked on and on. I think that's a description of Eutychus' experience. Blah, 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 blah. He's just going on and on. Oh, brother, when is this going to stop? I thought he said he's going to get us out of here by 1230. What in the world? Isn't there a game or something? I got to find a reason to tiptoe out of here. On and on for five hours or something like that, Paul had talked. Everybody's glued on Paul. Somebody had their eye on Eutychus. At least glanced up at him, probably his mama. It's Mother's Day. I had to try to weave a mother reference in there somewhere. It's a good thing I preach out of the NGT, the New Ghetto Translation of the Bible, because I can... You know, I can, I can incorporate some of these things. So here's how it went down. I just got a revelation right now how it actually went down. Paul is preaching. Eutychus' mama looks up in the window and says, oh, my son has fallen asleep. He better not fall asleep in that window. She looks back at Paul. She's thinking, I think I'm going to have to tiptoe over there and wake my son up. And she looks back a second later, and he's gone. Oh, Lord. And she jumps up. No, not my baby. Whatever she says, right? (laughs) Oh, Lord, Eutychus is gone. She interrupts Paul's sermon and runs to the window, and everybody follows her to the window, and they look out the window, and they see Eutychus laying out on the street, lifeless, on the ground. Imagine it's your son. And you look out the window and you see your son sprawled out on the ground, not moving a muscle. 
He's gone. Everybody runs down, and it says, it's, it says I, I want to read this passage to you so you can see. It says, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground. This is the end of verse 9. He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. What does it mean, and was picked up dead? Meaning everybody ran down and picked him up and began to mourn and grieve over his lifeless body. That is, they went down to collect their dead. They went down. The people ran down the stairs because in their mind and heart, it's over. The fall has taken place. There's no hope left. He's dead. They ran to the scene with the intention to mourn and to grieve, which is the definition of hopelessness. Because when there's no more hope, the only thing left is grief. And often the grieving process is the process of accepting the reality that there's no more hope. I remember when my grandmother died. It took me probably a couple years to actually fully accept the fact that she was gone. I would still call her house every few months without thinking. And it would ring a few times before I would stop and realize, oh my God, she's not there. One time I jumped in my car to drive to her house to take her to the mall. I said, she probably needs to go to the mall. And then all of a sudden it would, I have not fully embraced the fact that she's gone. And that's often the grieving process of coming to grips with the reality of accepting the reality that she's gone. And then as believers, we have to accept the second level reality, which actually was actually a higher level reality that we don't mourn as those who have no hope. But Paul comes running down the stairs with a completely different mindset. The people come running down the stairs with the intention to mourn the loss of their loved one. Paul comes running down the stairs with the intention to restore. You see, Paul is full of the Holy Spirit, and because he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's got hope. Does Paul know for a fact that he's going to be able to raise this kid from the dead? No. You actually never know for a fact. But Paul's running down the stairs because he's got hope. That is, Paul says, I'm not giving this up without a fight. This is not going down on my watch. This is not going to be the legacy of this church that I killed someone with a sermon. (laughs) There was something in Paul that said, hell to the no. Absolutely not. I'm not going to stand by and watch this. I'm not joining the mourners. Listen, the first thing hope does in your heart is causes something to rise up in you that says, I refuse to mourn with the mourners right now. There is a time to mourn with those who mourn. But there's something in your heart. Listen, there was a family in our church years ago. Their baby was born and then their baby died on the 10th day. Now, whenever there's a tragedy like that, I let the family determine the course of action. So I called the husband. He said, Pastor, would you come to the hospital? I said, I'm on the way right now. But here's the question I asked. How would you like me to pray? How would you like me to pray? He said, I want you to pray that the Lord would raise my baby up. I said, here I come. Let's do it. 
And we went into that room and we travailed and we cried out to God over that child for a couple hours maybe. And then finally, that young man looked at me and said, I feel in my heart it's time to let him go. I said, okay. I embrace that as well. We're simply exchanging one level of hope for another level of hope. Now the level of hope that he embraces is one day we're going to see him again. It wasn't the Lord's will to raise him up in the here and now. The question is, do you have the boldness to reach for something like that? Or would you require a 100% guarantee from God that he's going to do it? See, see, most of us have in our heart this prerequisite. God, I'll pray for healing if you give me a guarantee that you're actually going to heal. God, I'll pray for a miracle if you give me a guarantee that you're actually going to work that miracle. God gives no pre-guarantees of anything. He simply gives us opportunities to reach in faith, to run down the flight of stairs in faith and in hope that this could be an opportunity for God to do something that none of us anticipated. I heard a testimony about a, um, a, a kid who was... Um, a seminary student, and uh, non-charismatic. Isn't it crazy that, <laughs> that the Bible actually applies to non-charismatics as well? <laughs> like people think the gifts of the Spirit is only for charismatics. Actually, no, it's in the Bible. It's for all believers. And uh, this, they, they trained him at the hospital. He was, a, he was an intern as a, a chaplain. They trained him. When you go into the room, pray for what they ask you to pray for. And so he says, okay, so he goes into this room where this guy was paralyzed from the waist down. He had been in some car accident, and the doctor said, you've severed your spine. You will never walk again. You'll be in a wheelchair. You'll never have feeling below your waist for the rest of your life. And so he, go, he walks into the room, and he says to the man, how can I pray for you? And the man said, you can pray that God would restore my legs and that I would walk again. And he didn't even believe that that was possible, but they trained him to pray for what they asked you to pray for. <laughs> So he puts his hands on the guy's legs and he tells the story. He says the moment he put his hands on the guy's legs, his hands were on fire. <laughs> said he felt like he could have melted candles in both hands. Just His hands were so hot. And all of a sudden the guy starts screaming and he takes his hands off. He's got scared. And the guy says, don't stop. The guy was screaming because the, the connections were coming back. The electrical connections were coming. The circuitry was reconnecting in his legs. He's like, what do you feel? I feel pain in my legs, but that's a good thing. Don't stop. And he puts his hand back on the man's legs, and the man starts shaking under the power of God, and all of a sudden the guy jumps up out of the wheelchair and starts running. He was completely healed. Isn't it crazy that that guy wasn't a Pentecostal? He wasn't a charismatic. He was just a, a Christian do you realize that you, it, doesn't, it has nothing to do with who you are? It has nothing to do with who I am. It's simply the question, will you give God an opportunity to do something through you? Would, do you have enough hope in your heart? Are you able to open your heart to the Holy Spirit to allow him to give you enough hope to believe for life when everyone else says there's nothing but death here? Paul could have actually run down the stairs to stand over Eutychus and say, well, that's what you get for falling asleep in the window. And let this be a lesson to all of y'all. This could be you. You fall asleep in your window, you could be, you know, mama, you shouldn't have let him sit up there. What do you think's going to happen? Paul could have just used it as an opportunity to say, this was your mistake. You made your bed, now you're going to lie in it. Isn't it crazy that Paul, what the audacity of hope does, the hope that the Holy Spirit brings is it causes you to overstep any form of blame, shame, disqualification, 
Who cares whose fault it is? It's not about fault. The Holy Spirit is bigger than your fault, my fault, his fault, her fault. The Holy Spirit is able to restore and to bring life into things that are dead. You know the thing for this year? What's it say? Spirit of life. Spirit, do you know what it means when we're talking about the spirit of life? We're talking about the spirit who brings life. If you're not going to believe the spirit to bring life to something that died in your life, this theme is nothing but a cool graphic. Paul ran down the stairs with this expectation in his heart. Yes, something died, but my God is bigger than death. Isn't that the heart of the gospel? That even death was not strong enough to keep Jesus in its grip when the father decided by the power of the Holy Spirit to raise him up from the dead? Even three days in the grave was not long enough to keep him in the place of death? Do you realize that the resurrection power of Jesus lives on the inside of each and every one of us? And if the resurrection power of Jesus lives on the inside of each and every one of us, that God desires to use that resurrection power to bring life to dead things wherever you go? The question is, do you have enough hope in your heart to give God an opportunity or does all your hope flee away? You know, one of the things I realize a lot is people ask me to pray for them all the time, but a lot of times I don't feel like it. I don't want to pray for you. I don't feel like it, especially if you're sick and need healing in your body. And I have to check myself a lot because somebody will say, can you pray for me? I'll be like, sure. <laughs> I mean, I guess I got to. I'm the pastor. That's kind of my job. That's what they pay me for. What do you need prayer for? And then the worst the thing is cancer. I'm thinking, oh, Lord. Do you know what that is? That's the loss of hope. If I was overflowing with hope 100% of the time, I would live in the expectation that no matter what you come to me with, my God is bigger. That's hope. Hope is the awareness of the fact that my God is bigger. My God is bigger. My God is bigger. You know what? We have proof, physical proof that's sitting in this congregation right now that our God is bigger than cancer. She's sitting right in this middle section here. The Lord totally and completely healed her of cancer here at this church. I mean, proof is not far. My God is bigger. So why do I lose hope? Because sometimes I move into the flesh. And when I start moving into the flesh, I can tell I'm in the flesh. Because as soon as somebody asks for prayer, or as soon as the idea of prayer comes, or as soon as I hear of a devastating situation, my heart sinks. I just want to run down and collect the dead. But here's the thing I want you to get in your heart and mind. Hope is not the guarantee of the outcome that you prefer. Hope is not, listen, if, if I come to you for prayer for a physical sickness, hope is not the guarantee that I'm going to be physically healed. Hope is the opportunity that we give God to do something beyond what we can foresee, what we can produce by our own power. 
And hope has within itself, the hope that the Holy Spirit brings, has within itself the grace to sustain us through those moments when God does not act in the way that we would desire. I'll never forget when my wife called me when I was in China, when she was pregnant with Alethea, and uh, she said, the, the OBGYN told me that I had a miscarriage. And I said, oh my God. And she said, so I waited a day before calling you and went to a different OBGYN for a second opinion, and they told me the same thing. You've had a miscarriage. There's no embryo. It's obvious you were pregnant, but you're not pregnant anymore. The baby's gone. And everything inside of me sunk. We had been waiting for nine years to have a child. For nine years, we had cried out to God for a child. We finally get pregnant, and she has a miscarriage. And that night, I got before the Lord to pray, and the Lord spoke to me and said, your wife has not had a miscarriage. But listen to what the Lord says. Had your wife had a miscarriage, I would have given you the grace to walk through it. Notice God did not say it's impossible for your wife to ever have a miscarriage. And anyone who ever has, thinks they had a miscarriage, you just tell them, no, there's no miscarriage there. I just cancel that. And like as if it's impossible. It's not possible. People have miscarriages all the time. My grandmother had four of them or six of them. But with it comes grace. Are you hearing me? With it, it doesn't mean that you're never... Listen, the hope that the Holy Spirit brings is not the hope that you'll never have a hardship. But it is the expectation and the surety that if I walk through the waters, He's going to walk with me. And if I walk through the rivers, the rivers are not going to overflow me. And if I walk through the fire, I'm not going to be burned. That is, the God of hope fills me with hope as I trust in Him. And it means that whatever outcome He has predetermined for this circumstance, I'm going to have the grace to walk through it. But I'm not going to allow my heart to sink into a place of hopelessness where I've completely lost my expectation and anticipation of God's intervention. Does that make sense? My grandmother had six miscarriages. I told you that. My mother told me she had a dream years ago that my grandmother died and went to heaven. And when she entered into the presence of God, there were six adults that looked strangely like her. And she walked up to them and looked at them and says, and they welcomed her. They said, welcome. And she said, who are you? You, you guys look so familiar. You all look like me. Who are you? Are you family members I never met? And they smiled and they said, we're your children. The children you never knew on earth, you're going to know us here in heaven. Do you know how much joy that brings to you? It's just one level of hope to another level of hope. It's, it's, it's not a loss of hope. The miscarriage did not take away all of our hope, but it simply transformed. Do you realize that, that the day that, that our worst day here when she went home to be with the Lord was her, wor- it was her best day? <laughs> that, the, that the most difficult day for us when she breathed her last was the most glorious day for her. It was the day that she awoke in the presence of God. And not only did she get the opportunity to see Jesus, but she got to see Children that she bore but never got to carry. Do you realize I was sharing with a mother who had had an abortion and she was mourning and grieving over the decision that she made to have an abortion. And I said to her, but do you realize that that child went to be with the Lord and that one day you're going to meet that child in the presence of God? There's a new level of hope. Paul didn't run down the stairs with a prophetic word that God says, I shall do this. And he didn't, no, no. He simply had the hope to run at the issue. Yeah. 
And it said that when Paul got down the stairs, it says he fell on the boy. He threw his whole body. Do you know there's the laying on of hands? There's the laying on of bodies. (laughs) Paul said, this needs more than a hand. This needs a body. Kind of like Elijah laying his body out over that little boy. It's symbolic of a transfer of life. When Paul threw his body on that boy, it was as if Paul was saying, Lord, you filled me with your life. Now transfer that life to this young man. Yes, he made a mistake. Yes, he fell out of his window. Yes, he didn't realize the value of the moment. Yes, he didn't realize the precarious place he was living in. But God, I pray that you give him another shot. I pray you give him another chance. Listen, I've got good news for you today that there's some of you in this place and you've fallen asleep and fallen out of your window. But I've got good news for you today that God's not going to leave you sprawled out on the ground, dead in your transgressions and sins. He says that he's got another chance for you. He's got another moment. And the Holy Spirit is coming to give you hope that even if you've fallen out of your window because of your own bad decision, it's not over for you. It's not over. Because the spirit of life has come to fill you with all hope as you trust in him so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Bow your heads with me and if someone could come. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you today For the release of hope in this house, I feel, even as the gospel is being preached this morning, that the back of hopelessness is being broken off of hearts. There's folks here today that are hopeless about their marriage, but God, the back of hopelessness is being broken. There's some here today that are hopeless about their children, but the back of hopelessness is being broken. There's some here today who feel hopeless about themselves, hopeless about their own prospects for their own future, hopeless about their physical health, Hopeless about their spiritual state. Hopeless about their ability to break free from sin. But Father, you've come to fill us with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would overflow with hope. And Father, I pray for the overflow of hope that comes by the Holy Spirit. Lord, in the very place where Eutychus has fallen out of the window, I pray that you would give us the faith and the hope to run down the stairs to believe you to raise him up again. And Father, we believe you. I believe you today. I believe you today to raise Eutychus up. Raise him up. Raise him up right now. The place where we've fallen asleep in our window and fallen out onto the ground. Wake us up. There's new hope. There's a new chance. There's a new shot at life. A new shot at life. A new shot at righteousness. It's not over. It's not over. It's not broken beyond repair. He said, my ear is not heavy that it cannot hear and my arm is not shortened that it cannot save. It's not too hard. As the prophet Jeremiah said, ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and nothing is too difficult for you. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Whatever you're hopeless about, I break the power of that hopelessness over your life right now. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, hopelessness, you must go right now in Jesus' name. You must go. I speak a release of hope by the power of the Holy Spirit right now, a release of hope 
Some of you have gotten so used to being turned down in your job interviews that you've just come to expect, yeah, I'm going to another interview, but I'm not going to get that one. It's not going to happen. You're just so used to it. You're so used to falling back into the same hole that even when you climb out, you already begin to plan your next fall. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't not fall into that hole. I'm just, you're just so used to it, so used to it. Some of you, you're so used to fighting with your spouse that even during peacetime, you're already thinking of the next fight that's coming. Yeah, but she's going to say this within, you know, two days. I know she's going to say this. That's called hopelessness. That's called hopelessness. Hopelessness. But you've come to the right place today. You've come to living hope. You've come to living hope today, and, and you're not leaving here with that hopelessness in your heart. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us new birth into a living hope into the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade reserved in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's living hope for you today. Your hope is not dead. Your hope might have been what fell out of the window on the ground and died, but God is bringing a resurrection of hope today. A resurrection of hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're moving in this house today. You're moving in this house today. We give you glory. We give you glory. We give you praise. Ha. I just feel it. It's in the atmosphere. Hope. Hope is rising up again. I feel it in the atmosphere. It's, it's coming to life again. Your hope is coming to life again. Anxiety is breaking. Panic is breaking. Fear is breaking. Anxiety and panic and fear, those things happen in the absence of hope. But when hope comes to life, panic has to flee. Anxiety has to flee. Fear has to flee. When hope comes to life, when hope comes to life, your hope has died, but it's coming to life again right now. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you that hope is coming to life right now. In the name of Jesus, hope is coming to life. You say, what right do I have to hope again when I failed a hundred times? Listen, you're not, you're not trusting in yourself. You're not hoping in your ability to do it different this time. You're hoping in God's ability to empower you to do it this time. You're hoping in God's ability, not your own ability. Of course you don't trust yourself. I don't trust myself either. But let me tell you something. I trust in the name of the Lord my God. And I am helped. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, stand up on your feet. Just lift up your hands and just begin to open.